Good morning, everybody. I'm happy to be here with you at this Evangelization Leadership Summit. Let me express my gratitude to Father Streitenberger, to Liz Christie, the Office of Evangelization, all the volunteers, and all who have met, made this event possible, especially Ohio Dominican University and the Dominican Sisters of Peace, who, who have allowed us to host this event here. At my installation uh, back at the end of May, I could not help but think about how our local church put forth the best face of Columbus and of Catholicism, really. Uh, people commented on the music, on the professionalism, on, on how everything just seemed to go so well. The occasion was one of joy, not only for, our, for me personally, but for our whole church. It was good to see everyone together and to celebrate to set aside divisions and polarization that afflicts both society and the church, and to simply be together, gathered with the Lord. And I hope our gathering today recaptures some of that unity and joy. At the installation, I highlighted two top priorities for the Diocese of Columbus, evangelization and vocations. And we are at the conclusion of National Vocation Awareness Week. And I believe the two, evangelization and vocations, go hand in hand. At the installation, you know, I said, okay, this year in the Diocese of Columbus, there are more bishops being ordained than priests. We need boots on the ground, but because there are so few priests, we also need deacons and lay men and women to be evangelists in their communities right where the Lord has put them. Evangelization is also at the front of Pope Francis's mind within six months of his election as Pope. Uh, he wrote uh, the exhortation, The Joy of the Gospel, Evangelii Gaudium. There he gave us the essential program of his pontificate, and we're now in the 10th year of his pontificate. And that really involves being a missionary church. For the Pope, the whole missionary endeavor begins with an encounter with Christ. Evangelium Gaudium, Evangelii Gaudium begins with these words. The joy of the gospel fills the hearts and lives of all who encounter Jesus. Those who accept his offer of salvation are set free from sin sorrow, inner emptiness, and loneliness. With Christ, joy is born anew. Just as Pope Francis begins with the encounter with Christ, so too Pope Benedict XVI, in his first encyclical letter, God is Love, in the very first paragraph, wrote these words. Being a Christian is not a result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea. It is a result of an encounter with an event or a person that gives our life a decisive direction and opens up new horizons. The encounter with Christ is fundamental, and we gather here to meet Christ, the one who gives our life decisive direction, the one who brings us joy. We also come to encounter one another as brothers and sisters. We do not exist in a vacuum, adrift from relationships. Rather, we are inserted into a determined people and share a common lifestyle. We are inserted into a local church, which is the Diocese of Columbus, and we are the one people of God who reveal the many faces of God. Pope Francis, as I said, he has a dream for the church, that the church would be a missionary church. In Evangelii Gaudium, again, he writes, I dream of a missionary option. That is, a missionary impulse capable of transforming everything so that the church's customs, ways of doing things, times and schedules, language and structures can be suitably channeled for the evangelization of today's world rather than for her self-preservation. I cannot tell you how crazy it drove me as a priest and how crazy it drives me as a bishop when I get the answer, why do we do this? Well, we've always done it that way. The Pope says that's not good enough for to meet the challenges of today's world, we need to have pastoral conversion of our structures for the sake of the mission. We don't just change for the sake of changing, we don't just go from fad to fad, but for the mission of evangelization. And so to understand what he means, I want you to consider his words during his visit to Brazil. There he, he, he spoke of the continental mission of all of the Americas, and we have lots of people coming from the global south to our country. And he said the continental mission is both programmatic and paradigmatic. The prog programmatic dimension is a series of missionary activities, while the paradigmatic dimension is this. It involves setting in a missionary key all the day-to-day -day activities of the particular churches. Clearly, this entails a whole process of reforming ecclesial structures. The change of structures will not be the result of reviewing the organizational flowchart, which would lead to a static reorganization. Rather, it will result from the very dynamics of mission. 
is just not about changing our offices around. He dreams of a new missionary spirit. Only from this paradigmatic choice to be a missionary church will authentic reform, vital for evangelization, flow. We cannot be concerned any longer about maintaining what we have or maintaining what we had or even restoring what we had. We have to say we are a missionary church. Everything we do is about going forward. Just as a wind pushes against the sail and causes the boat to move upon the water, so to the Spirit of God pushes the whole church to go forth into the world, attentive to the signs of the times and the needs of the people, jettisoning that which is obsolete. Pope Francis adds that what makes obsolete structures pass away, what leads to a change of heart in Christians, is precisely missionary spirit. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says the first work of the Holy Spirit is conversion. And that means personal conversion, but also communal conversion. We need to have this change of heart if we are to be the missionaries that Christ wants us to be. So we are called to be an evangelizing church, a missionary church. But what are the characteristics of an evangelizing church? Pope Francis tells us in Evangelii Gaudium number 24, he speaks about these characteristics. The first characteristic, he says, is we are a church that goes forth. The church which goes forth is a community of missionary disciples who take the first step, who are involved and supportive, who bear fruit and rejoice. And so I'm going to go through each of those uh, here shortly. All right, we, we seize the initiative. We are involved and engaged. We're supportive. We bear fruit and we rejoice. Just before he was elected pope in his address to the cardinals uh, at the time of the conclave, he said this, when the church does not go out of herself to evangelize, she becomes self-referential and then she gets sick. When the church is self-referential, without realizing it, she believes she has her own light. She ceases to be the Mysterium Lunae and gives rise to the grave evil of spiritual worldliness. Simplifying, there are two images of the church, either the evangelizing church that comes out of itself or the worldly church that, that lives in itself, of itself, for itself. This should illuminate the possible changes and reforms that will have to be made for the salvation of souls. This is why we are missionary, for the salvation of souls. We proclaim, not words on a page, but Jesus Christ who brings salvation. Thus, I want to outline now the characteristics of an evangelizing church, which the Pope himself names in Evangelii Gaudium 24. Characteristics which we do already have here in the Diocese of Columbus, which, which could be further expanded. First, we are a church that goes forth, which the Holy Father describes this way. Instead of just being a church that welcomes and receives by keeping doors open, let us try also to be a church that finds new roads, that is able to step outside itself and go to those who do not attend Mass, to those who are, have quit or are indifferent. The ones who have quit sometimes do it for reasons that, if properly understood and assessed, can lead to a return. But that takes audacity and courage. In other words, we can't just wait for people to come to us. We have to go out to them, especially those who have fallen away. To go forth to the spiritual and existential peripheries, to use the language of the Pope, demands courageously leaving our comfort zone. Sometimes I see priests only gathering with other priests who are like-minded. Seminarians do the same. Engineers do the same. And an extroverted engineer uh, doesn't look down at his shoes. The introverts do. <clears throat> we have to go forth and talk with people who maybe don't necessarily agree with us, but St. Augustine says we need to teach to delight and to persuade, and therefore to bring back. This is true even of our initiative, Real Presence, Real Future, here in the Diocese of Columbus. It's not just about closing and merging parishes, but about evangelizing and going out, outside our comfort zone and our ordinary way of doing things. We cannot simply maintain what we had or what we have. The numbers just won't hold. The structure simply won't hold. You know, we have 105 parishes in this diocese. We have 90 uh, active priests. Of those 90 active priests, 10 are pastors over age 70. That is beyond retirement age. Zero ordinations this year, one ordination next year. Even if we doubled the number of seminarians, it would take a long time to equip them to be 
priests and pastors. So something is going to have to change. We have to go forth, and we need your help. Secondly, the second characteristic of an evangelizing community is not just one that goes forth, but it's one that takes the first step, that shows initiative. Pope Francis invites us to be imitators of God by having foresight. As I have used this term before, we have to be spiritual entrepreneurs. An entrepreneur is one who sees the competition. An entrepreneur is one who has vision. An entrepreneur is one who sees that there are competing voices and he says, wait a minute, this is what we need to do not just to survive, but to thrive and to grow the business. Well, I want to grow the business of Jesus. And it's not just like Milton Friedman uh, said, the business of business is business. Because what our business offers, business offers, is salvation. We have to be imitators of God by seizing the initiative especially with those who are at the peripheries. The Pope uses a Spanish term, primerayar, which captures the idea. This means to be proactive rather than reactive. Spiritual entrepreneurs don't just react to what they see. You have to verify what you see. You have to engage reality. But you also have to say, where do we want to be five years from now, 10 years from now, 50, uh, 50 years from now? When the Son of Man comes, will, he have fi will we find faith on the earth? Where our children and our children's children have faith. What we do now matters for them for the future. The Pope writes, an evangelizing community knows that the Lord has taken the initiative. He has first loved us, and therefore we can move forward, boldly taking the initiative, go out to others, seek those who have fallen away, stand at the crossroads, and welcome the outcasts. God took the initiative with us. If we think about the other religions of the world, they're always trying to escape this world, escape pain and suffering and so on and so forth through various means. But in the Jewish and Christian dispensation, it is God who takes the initiative. God who reveals himself to the Jewish people and makes them his own. God who reveals himself further through his son, Jesus Christ, who has saved us. Almighty God came down from heaven and took on flesh as a little child. He took the initiative. A third characteristic of an evangelizing community is that it is involved or engaged with its members. The, the clear majority of the faithful are lay Catholics who have been made priest, prophet, and king through baptism. They have talents and gifts to offer both the church and the world. The bishops and priests, we have the task of animating their vocations, including those of permanent deacons who also serve beside the priests in the Lord's vineyard. Do we, as a community of faith, engage those who are truly expert in our community in the work of evangelization? Some people say, well, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Matthew Kelly will say, well, it's really 7% of the people doing 100% of the work. And even the people who are doing the work, people like you who are at this conference, right, you do great work. But you also have to discern, when is it time to step aside and let somebody else do the, do the work and use their gifts and talents? How can we make place in our community for more and more people to be engaged? Do we engage others? The Holy Father sometimes, though, uses the word balkanayar to describe people who don't get involved or engaged. This is a term to describe the little old ladies in Argentina who stand on the balcony and look out at what everybody else is doing. And they see everybody else's problems and they identify them and then they gossip one to another and the, and the word spreads about everything that is wrong. We know this type. But he says, <laughs> we know this type, we know this type in the church, right? We know this type in politics, the backbenchers, right? But he says, you know, that type of person doesn't lift a finger to offer a solution. This is the difference. He, the Pope says Jesus was exactly the opposite type of person from the one who stands on the balcony and gossips and does nothing. He says Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. The Lord gets involved and involves his own as he kneels to wash their feet. He tells his disciples, you will be blessed if you do this. An evangelizing community gets involved by word and deed in people's daily lives. It bridges distances, is willing to abase itself if necessary, and it embraces human life, touching the suffering flesh of Christ in others. About a month or so ago, I was in Rome for the School of Formation for New Bishops, and in our audience with the Pope, the Pope told all of us bishops, you know, one thing you really should do is go visit prisons. 
There you really get involved in people's lives who never get to go outside. You go to them. And you can bring God's mercy and love into those dark holes. And you can wash their feet and kiss their feet. You should do that. This he encouraged all of us. I think within the diocese, within our presbyter, we can fall into patterns of gossip and negativity or simple resignation. Right? This is how things always were. This is how things are going to be. We're going to close. We're just going to get smaller and smaller. We critique, but without offering a proposal. It's a temptation. I've been pleasantly surprised by the willingness of our priests and the whole people of God here in Columbus to offer ideas and responses to the proposals of real presence and real future. Some people have even met with me directly to tell me what's on their mind and what's on the hearts of the people of God here. I get all kinds of letters, some good, some bad, some complaining, some offering uh, some proposals, but I try to answer almost all of them. So we, uh, you know, we want to people to get involved and engaged, and that's a characteristic of an evangelizing community. A fourth characteristic of a, an evangelizing community, a community of missionary disciples, is that it accompanies others. Speaking in Assisi, Pope Francis said, I repeat it often, walking with our people, sometimes in front, sometimes in the middle, and sometimes in behind. Sometimes in front in order to guide the community, in the middle in order to encourage and support, and at the back in order to keep it united, and so that no one lags too far behind to keep them united. A great principle that is being lost in the church is that we are one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Unity was critical to the early Christians, and even today we are celebrating the feast of St. Joseph, who worked and spent his whole life and shed his blood for unity. But this accompaniment entails guiding, encouraging, supporting, and uniting. And I'll talk a little bit more about accompaniment later. But we journey with our people in the Diocese of Columbus, even if the future is not always certain. The Pope says he wants a synodal church, a church that walks together. And so we, who are the ministers in the church and the pastoral ministers in the church, we accompany others, and along the way, we listen to what they have to say, and we speak to them, and we learn the art of dialogue. We live in a time of epical change. That is, the Pope says we live not so much in a, uh, in a change of time, as a, not so much in a time of change as in a change of time, a change of epoch. Every 500 years is a great shift. For example, when Columbus discovers the new world, it, it changes everything. We are presently experiencing that now. And it's in this co context that we have to evangelize. We who announce the gospel cannot evangelize by neglecting new forces at work, affecting new generations who have their own expectations and aspirations including those who are now coming to our country, right? 30 years ago, we would never have expected the internet to take off the way it, it would. Even when I went for my studies in Rome, I still had a pager. I didn't have a mobile phone. Now the mobile phone does more than our computers used to do. You know, and people are connected and have access to other voices and, and so on, and our world has changed completely. How do we evangelize in this context? Many people... Change is difficult for people, and many people are frightened of change, including, and they're frightened of strangers and new people. And there are more than a million people who are going to come to the Diocese of Columbus in the next 10 years. Are we going to be prepared to propose the gospel to them? Are we going to see them as a threat, or are we going to see them as a brother or sister? Are we see, going to see them as a threat and a friend and a co-worker for the truth, or as a competitor? We will ask, what will this new person mean for me, for my future, for my existence? What will they mean for my parish and for the way we do things here? Certainly, I think bishops, priests, we're the same way. We still ask those same questions. But we should begin to see them as part of our corporate body, the church, rather than as competitors. In the face of this existential fear, one approach would simply be to build a wall around ourselves to protect what we have. But this would never banish the interior fear or anxiety that we might have. This wouldn't help us to live in a new way or help them or us experience the joy that comes from the freedom offered by Christ or the gospel. But the alternative to building walls around ourselves is dialogue. And at the heart of dialogue is the communication of one's own personal life and one's experience, I would say, of faith to others. 
It is the sharing of the existence of others in one's own existence. I want you to be part of my life, and I want to be part of your life. And part of my life is this relationship I have with Jesus, and part of my life is the experience of love I have in this community. Please come and see what this is all about. I want you to know the joy that I know of being loved by the Lord Jesus. It's about sharing, a mutual sharing, that deals with how to live in harmony, while at the same time, not simply accepting everything, but offering what is best of our tradition, offering what is best of the gospel that can purify and ennoble ideas from other cultures and traditions. So I'm hopeful that our gathering today will allow us to share something of ourselves with one another, share some strategies for evangelization and how we might do that in a secularized, and sec uh, uh, in a secularized world, in a post-Christian, post-modern sort of context. How can we dialogue and engage? How can we do a little bit of apologetics, but more than apologetics, for even for faith, how can we share the joy of the gospel with others? A fifth characteristic of an evangelizing community is that it is fruitful. In paragraph 24 of Evangelii Gaudium, the Holy Father refers to the uh, parable of the weeds and the wheat. He said, an evangelizing community is always concerned with fruit because the Lord wants her to be fruitful. It cares for the grain and does not grow impatient with weeds. The sower, when he sees weeds sprouting among the grain, he does not grumble or overreact. He or she finds a way to let the word take flesh in a particular situation and bear fruits of new life, however imperfect or incomplete they may be, they may appear. So the Greek word zizania is used to describe the wheats, and it really means ryegrass, which is indistinguishable from wheat until the very last moment. In the parable, they ask, well, master, should we, should we pull the weeds out? And the Lord says, no, let it wait for a while. Give it some time, be patient with others, and then then we'll discern, then we'll maybe have to uproot, but be patient. Because the important thing is, you might pull up the weeds along with the wheat, and we want to bear fruit. We want to have a rich harvest. Jesus cautions his disciples of the need to be patient and to discern because things are not always initially clear. And while farmers discern between weeds and wheat, the church embraces people who have the possibility of responding to the divine initiative and who by grace can be transformed from sinner to saint, from weeds to wheat. Following Jesus' example, we try to be patient. Patience is the art of accompaniment and discernment, which allows the whole church to move forward. Pope Francis sees patience, actually, as a mark of holiness. He says, I see holiness in the patience of the people of God. I often associate sanctity with patience, not only as hypomene, with taking charge of events and circumstances of life, but also as a constancy in going forward day by day. This is the sanctity of the militant church also mentioned by St. Ignatius. Or another saint once said, patience is that which one is willing to suffer out of love for another. I think, you know, when I used to hear confessions all the time, I thought, if I got a, if I got a nickel for every time a spouse or a parent confessed impatience, I would be a millionaire many times over. <laughs> but what are you willing to suffer out of love for another? Think about how Jesus patiently endured his sufferings so that the church might bear fruit. The final characteristic of an evangelizing community is joy. It's the, this type of a community celebrates small victories in the work of evangelization. Joy is the greatest experience of the church that goes forth. The Eucharist is the source and summit of all life in the church. And the Eucharist is the sacrament which nourishes Christian joy. It is the strongest sacramental sign of the Paschal Lordship of Christ, recalling his victory over sin and death. In the Eucharist, Christ is among us. The joy that he has won is preserved and shared. Eucharistic joy is not incomplete or fading like the pleasures of this world. It is a lasting joy. It is the consolation of which St. Ignatius of Loyola speaks. And joy is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus breathed on his apostles at Easter. And the scriptures recounted that the disciples rejoiced to see the Lord. The church celebrates the Eucharist with the spousal joy of one promise to Christ. It is a foretaste of the eschatological banquet in which those invited will share in the heavenly banquet of the kingdom in its fullness. Blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. Through the Mass, 
the church brings the world joy. Thus the Holy Father writes, evangelization with joy becomes beauty in the liturgy. The church evangelizes and is herself evangelized through the beauty of the liturgy, which is both a celebration of the task of evangelization and the source of her renewed self-giving. And this is why we began this day with the Mass. I think we need to examine whether our local church and parishes demonstrate the joy which flows from the Eucharist. When you leave Mass, are you filled with joy? Are you angry? I think it's an honest question. Do you have that degree of joy? Some, one woman, she once complained to me after Mass, well, Father, I didn't hear the, the, uh, the praise and worship songs that we usually hear at our 1015 Mass. And I said, well, that's because the music group couldn't make it this week, and our organist, uh, she got sick, uh, but the young woman who sang uh, uh, at the Mass, uh, she volunteered to play two Masses today and got her little daughter to sing. So I went to worship, but, but I didn't have my songs. I didn't have my songs. There was nothing joyful about the Mass. And I said, well, you know, uh, we had a baptism at Mass, too. We have a new child of God, and I think the ten, the, her, 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 her seven brothers and sisters and her parents are also filled with joy. And by the way, you did receive Jesus, and you heard his saving word. We can focus only on what we are deprived of and be victims and angry. Or we might say the priest preached too long, or I didn't like what... The priest brings us Jesus, and Jesus brings us joy. People ask me, why do I smile all the time? It's because of the joy of receiving Jesus, seeing upon, upon the altar, and knowing that he sees me and he loves me. And this is what brings a smile to my face, and then I smile, and then everybody's smiling and saying, Father, you smile all the time. Bishop, you smile. And, uh, and I always want to say, well, there's an Italian proverb, you get more with a gun and a smile than with just a gun. So I keep smiling. <laughs> but, you know, other people will say, well, you know what? I was smiling in church. Heaven forbid, I was smiling in church. Maybe church isn't so bad after all. <laughs> Joy marks the Eucharistic community, and so I think we really need to examine that. The Eucharistic revival affords us an opportunity for the church in the United States to experience and celebrate the nuptial joy of a community that is loved by the Lord, which is a clear mark of a community that evangelizes and is herself evangelized. But there are certain barriers to joy. Pope Francis points out that there are barriers to the experience of joy and to the church's evangelizing efforts. One such barrier is our own internal structures, which are in urgent need of pastoral and missionary conversion for evangelization rather than for the church's self-preservation. A second barrier is actually sin. Pope Benedict XVI said the sacrament of reconciliation is actually the fuel for the new evangelization. Pope John Paul II said that at the root of structural sin is personal sin. Pope Francis has emphasized mercy, and he speaks of the church as a field hospital. He writes, I clearly see that what the church needs most today is the ability to heal wounds and warm the hearts of the faithful, closeness, proximity. I see the church as a field hospital after a battle. One must treat her wounds. Then we can talk about everything else. And one grave wound to the holiness of the church, I must say, is the sexual abuse crisis. It's a major wound to the victims of abuse, to their families, and to the faithful. And our evangelizing efforts will be hindered unless we accept our responsibility and take concrete actions to ask for forgiveness while remaining vigilant in the protection of minors. We can no longer tolerate bad behavior or cover up any of these things any longer because the credibility of the church to speak on many other issues is directly impacted by her credibility to protect the weakest members of her society and, the we and, and her credibility in this area, even though we probably have more protocols in place than any other organization. And this will be long, hard work to heal these relationships, not only of those who have been hurt and victimized and betrayed, but also the relationships between priests and bishops as many priests have voiced their lack of trust in their relationship with their bishops as well. Our own shame, our own woundedness, and our own experience of mercy from the Lord may allow us to be more empathetic and to accompany those who are hurting. 
If we stick our heads in the ground, we will never be able to evangelize. I was ordained in 2002 at the height of the crisis. I've lived my whole priesthood under this shadow. I have accompanied victims and heard their stories. But you must also, because Jesus offers mercy. The image of the church as a field hospital highlights another key element of Pope Francis' pontificate, which is mercy, which the Pope reminds us, and he did at the end of the Jubilee year for mercy, cannot remain a parenthesis in the life of the church. This mercy is shown in the sacrament of penance and through the spiritual and corporal works of mercy. Catholic social doctrine, in particular, our outreach to the poor, the marginalized, the migrant, as well as our educational endeavors here in this diocese, especially for non-Catholics or those who live in impoverished areas, helps show forth the merciful and maternal face of the church. The church has been prophetic in its openness toward those who are suffering from a humanitarian crisis at the border, and for decades it has been passionate in the defense of the unborn. Now, following the Dobbs decision, the Walking with Moms in Need initiative takes on a new importance in showing forth the maternal tenderness of the church for all her children, demonstrating that the priority is mercy rather than harshness or judgment. The Holy Father wants a missionary church, but it's not just the priests and religious who are missionaries. Father Patrick is an apostle of Jesus. He is far from his home country. He is a missionary in missionary territory, which is the United States. But the Holy Father wants a missionary church in which everyone is an evangelist, everyone. And therefore, this demands co-responsibility for the church. For example, the Pope, he says, I want a poor church for the poor. Then he reminds us that the poor are not to be instrumentalized as an object of the church's charity. Rather, they should be equipped through more just economic structures to be protagonists in their own future. Once when I was a seminary academic dean on the seminary formation team, we had, um, we had one of our seminarians come in to see us uh, for his end of the year evaluation, and he was going to the Peter Claver School of boy, uh, for Boys. It was a Latin school in, in the inner city Cincinnati, all black students. Uh, and he went down there for his pastoral works, and he was saying, oh, I did this for them, I did this for them, I did this for them. I said, well, what did you learn from them? nothing. He said nothing. I didn't learn anything from him. Was I supposed to? But this is the point. We can help the poor all we want, but what are we learning from them? How are they evangelizing us? And the same could be said about the sick. We evangelize them, but I've visited many sick people and I see their great faith, especially as they confront eternity. How are we not just evangelizing them, but being evangelized. Everybody plays a role, no matter how strong or weak. Beyond the poor, evangelization applies to the other members of the people of God, whom the clergy, ourselves included, assist in growing to maturity and accepting co-responsibility for the mission of the church. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here, to help others accept responsibility for our church. The co-responsibility for the church can be a renewed way of being the church. Sometimes you say, well, the priests and nuns don't have to do everything. It's true, but it's also necessary. Listen to the words of Pope Benedict XVI. It is necessary to improve pastoral structures in such a way that the co-responsibility of all the members of the people of God in their entirety is gradually promoted with respect for vocations and for the respective roles of the consecrated and the lay people. This demands a change in mindset particularly concerning lay people. They must no longer be viewed as collaborators of the clergy, but truly be recognized as co-responsible for the church's being and action, thereby fostering the consolidation of a mature and committed laity. This isn't Pope Francis. It's Pope Benedict saying this. You're not merely collaborators, but true protagonists in the future of the church, in the way the church exists. Mature and committed. These are the key words here. It's notable that the three of Pope Francis' major documents, Evangelii Gaudium, Laudato Si, and Amoris Laetitia, conclude all on a spiritual note. The exhortation, Gaudete et Exultate, meditate on the universal call 
to holiness. Even his latest letter, letter on the liturgy, Desiderio uh, Desideravi, try saying that three times real fast, called for a great liturgical formation of both clergy and the laity. The strong emphasis on discernment during these, year, these last 10 years of his pontificate is intended not only for pastors, but also for individuals and communities. And this can cause us some unease if we have neglected or have or if we neglect or have neglected the proper spiritual and liturgical formation of the laity, then we'll say, well, it's the blind leading the blind. However, if we fulfill our duty, then we can more easily trust, as the Pope does, the entire people of God and accompany them on a path to ever greater spiritual maturity. Just as seminary formators accompany seminarians to reach affective maturity, so too it is our task as ministers of the church to accompany the lay faithful so that they may accept co-responsibility for the church and the world, so that they get involved and engaged, so that they don't just sit on the balcony, so that they can be spiritual entrepreneurs. Our collective efforts to promote the dignity of the person in the kingdom of God can be more effective, leading to the pastoral conversion of structures necessary for our joint mission if we take this step. We may have differing roles and differing degrees of authority, but everyone has a part to play in the evangelizing mission. So the unease that we experience, the anxiety, even the crisis, can be an opportunity, can be transformed into an opportunity. The French philosopher uh, Maurice Blondel provides this insight. He says, without the church, the faithful would not be able to decipher the true writing of God, whether in the Bible or on the soul. However, if each member of the faithful were not to bring his or her contribution to common life, to the common life, then the organization would not be entirely living and spiritual. Why do we seem more dead than alive sometimes? Well, because we don't appreciate everyone's gifts. In Gaudete et Exultate, Pope Francis reminded us of the holiness next door. He challenges us by stating, we must not think only of the blessed and canonized, because the Spirit spreads holiness everywhere. So, how are we promoting ordinary holiness in our diocese? Are there sufficient spiritual directors and guides for priests and laity? Do we have moments of prayer and adoration? Are churches even unlocked? Have we fostered the devotion life, devotional life? What contribution might the lay ecclesial movements, communion and liberation, the neocatechumenal way, the Catholic charismatic movement, make to the growth in holiness of the rank and file parishioners. The Holy Father invites us as pastoral ministers to accompany others in their spiritual journey and in their human journey. St. Thomas Aquinas, the sisters could tell us, says that grace builds upon nature and perfects it. We are well aware at the human level of the brokenness of the family and the demands of Catholic teaching, particularly in the domain of morality and including human sexuality, marriage, and family life. The recent synodal report from our diocese as well as the national report indicates that many of our own people, for diverse reasons, do not accept church teaching. While we are teachers, we as teachers can articulate right doctrine in a more attractive and understandable way so that the faithful can receive it, we also need to accompany them along the path so that they can actually live their faith in a way that offers them peace of heart, experiencing the true, the good, and the beautiful. In Amoris Laetitia, Pope Francis refers to the distinction that John Paul II made 40 years earlier between the law of gradualness and gradualness of law. The best way for me to describe it is sort of like, this is the bar, all right? The gradualness of law says, we know that you can't make it, so for you, the bar is down here. That's gradualness of, that's the, the gradualness of law. The law of gradualness says, though, this is the bar. Try to jump over that bar. Okay, you didn't jump over that bar. Let's do some exercises. Let's get some training. Try to jump over that bar. You didn't make it again. Okay, don't give up. Don't give up. I'm with you. Come on, you can do it. Here, try this technique. Okay, now you're closer this time. All right, don't give up. Keep going, keep going. Made it over the bar. Hey, look, I made it over the bar. It's like a child learning languages. First you say, ma, you just cry. Then mama, papa, 
Then you start putting a few phrases together, then sentences, then you begin to gain proficiency, then you have perfect grammar and syntax. It's like learning languages or learning to ride a bicycle, the law of gradualness. It doesn't show respect for persons to say, you can't make it, you'll never make it, you're no better than a beast, the bar is down here for you. A church that accompanies elevates. It doesn't settle for mediocrity. But Pope Francis invited every particular church, every diocese, to figure out how, what the path forward is to deeper discernment. Everyone has to enter into this process of discernment, purification, and reform so that the missionary impulse of the church might be more focused, generous, and fruitful. Adding that the important thing is not to walk alone, but to rely on each other as brothers and sisters, and especially under the leadership of the bishops, in a wise and realistic pastoral discernment. We have to discern the way forward as missionary disciples. Discernment means to for Pope Francis to recognize the reality of the situation, to interpret it in light of faith, in light of the gospel, in light of the church's teaching and magisterium, and then having properly discerned and deliberated eventually to make a choice. Not everyone has to make the choice. The bishops ultimately have to make a choice, but we don't have to make the choice on our own. We listen and we gather to what, uh, listen to what people are saying. We gather insights from the people of God so that we can all move forward and accept co-responsibility for the future of our church. So what then is the path forward? What is the path forward on our mission? What is it that the church in the United States and the church in Columbus can offer to our world? First of all, I think we need to listen to the words of Simon Peter in the Acts of the Apostles when he's at the beautiful gate with the Apostle John and they meet the, 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 the beggar. And Simon Peter says, I have neither silver nor gold, but what I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, stand up and walk. And the guy jumps up and walked and goes into the temple praising God. We cannot be paralyzed by the challenges that we face, declining mass attendance, reduction in parishes, secularization of society, because we should have great confidence in God himself. O Lord, although I am lowly in thy all holy sight, I am strong in thee and in thy immaculate mother and in thy angels and saints, and thus I can do much good for the church, the world, and all those whom I love. We should take great confidence in the merits of the passion of Jesus Christ and in his power. What, what do we offer? Not a thing, the person. Who is the one we offer? He is the one who has the words of everlasting life. Master, to whom shall we turn? First time Peter speaks in St. John's Gospel, at the end of the Bread of Life discourses, Peter says, Master, to whom shall we turn? You have the words of everlasting life. We should remember that this is ultimately what we are offering, Jesus Christ who brings salvation. It is he who has the capacity of transforming lives, and it is our task to facilitate an encounter with him, to proclaim him who brings us joy. Joy ultimately is the effect of this deep experience of God, of an encounter with God who takes us beyond ourselves to reach our truest being from which springs evangelizing action. And so our efforts at evangelization are really the fruit of our experience of God. What else is it that we can offer? I think what the church can offer today and to meet the needs of society today, we, the church can offer an adequate anthropology. Pope Francis time and again laments the throwaway culture. In response to the throwaway culture, which does not value the unborn, the elderly, the unproductive, the stranger, the disabled, we can offer a broader vision of the human person. The church's teaching about marriage and family life is truly good news that needs to be proclaimed. The human person in relationship to all of creation, which the Pope talks about in Laudato Si', we cannot be silent about the, these fundamental truths, that God made man in his own image and likeness, that he made them male and female, that he told them to be fruitful and multiply and to be stewards of all of creation. This is essential, and we shouldn't apologize for it. Rather, we should proclaim it, shout it from the housetops. Recently, the Holy See published the Catechumenal Pathways for Matrimonial Life, 
This, reckon, this is a kind of a way of doing marriage preparation, but not just for the marriage ceremony, right? Priests, nuns, we get five to ten years of training to live our vocation. What do married couple, engaged couples get? Maybe three or four sessions with the priest, maybe a pre-cana retreat weekend, and that's it. Good luck. Have at it. No, I mean, now we're, we're reaching the stage where people no longer fundamentally understand what marriage is that marriage is between a man and a woman, that marriage is a deep sharing of the whole lot of life and love, that it is ordered toward the procreation and education of children and the good of the spouses, that it's ordered toward heaven. No concept of that. It's much like people who are coming to the church for the first time to be baptized in the RCIA. This catechumenal process is now what the church is proposing for those who are preparing, not just for the marriage ceremony, but for the whole vocation of married life which itself is a vocation to evangelize. Married couples are called to evangelize, this model proposes, other married couples. It invites the church to identify those couples who would be mentors, kind of like RCIA sponsors or confirmation sponsors, who would accompany engaged couples not only during the period of preparation, but especially at the beginning of married life, to offer their words of wisdom even from moments of crisis as to how to keep moving forward. Right? In this sense, the laity accept co-responsibility for the church. The way you live your marriage can help evangelize other couples around you, and the church is calling on you for this. And this is also why family-based catechesis is, the, is so fundamental for the church today. Because, again, parents are the primary educators of their children. They have to witness to their children the importance of the reality of faith in their lives. The church isn't just something that we do for a few moments on Sunday, but it's a whole way of life, right? And so this requires collective effort. We can't just say, I'm dumping my child off at the school, I'm dumping my child off at the church for, for Catholic education or for PSR. No, we need to be involved. It is in the family that the, we speak of the family as the building block of society, and we speak of the family as the, church, as the domestic church. But if there were no families, the church would simply disappear. It is families who ensure the most stable and reliable presence in parishes. It is they who participate more regularly in the sacraments. It is they who are most generous in giving their support, including financially, to parish activities. Families supply us with catechists. It is in the family that priestly and religious vocations are born. It is in the family that volunteers for charity and charitable services and outreach are carried out by the church. And the same could be said in the social sphere. Without strong families present in the area, the number of lonely people increases, and with it the spread of depression and various forms of mental distress. The elderly end up being neglected with serious repercussions, among other things, on the cost of public assistance. Without families, society deteriorates. And if we are well aware of the crucial role of families in the church and society, we can understand why the entire parish community must have families at heart and why family-based catechesis is so vital. If nothing else, parents as primary educators of their children must accept their responsibility. They play a vital role. Everyone in the church is called to help young people form new families and to be inspired by young people who form new families, that is, who show courage in saying yes to their vocations. We need to support and encourage those families which are established and to accompany them through the different stages of their lives. That's something that the church can offer, an adequate anthropology and support of the family. A third thing that I would say that the church can offer is its care for creation. In Laudato Si at its core, there is a common theme in seeing creation as a gift for all, demanding a united effort in the care of our common home, rather than simply using and abusing the world and its resources. This conspicuous consumption, often, often accompanied by radical individualism, degenerates into the dehumanization of the person. The church can offer to the, the people of God an integral ecology, which encompasses not only the dignity of the human person as the crown of creation, but also the social dimension of life on this earth. 
The social dimension, concern for our brothers and sisters, is ultimately a very Catholic dimension, which awakens the conscience, the needs, and the plight of many of our brothers and sisters, and can be an effective instrument for overcoming selfishness that leads to unjust exclusion in society. The church then offers Jesus Christ. The church offers an adequate anthropology and support of the families. The church raises awareness of our common home together and the need to care for all of creation, including the human person. But we do not do so together. So sometimes we can think of creation or the world as a sphere, right? St. Thomas Aquinas says the sphere is the perfect shape. He follows Aristotle in this regard. And as I am a bishop, I put on a lot of weight. I keep eating and eating and eating. And as I get bigger and bigger, I keep saying I'm approaching perfection. <laughs> but Pope Francis doesn't use this. You know, people say the sphere is the perfect shape because every point from the, from the center is equidistant. But he uses the example of a polyhedron. So I don't know if any of you are Dungeons and Dragons geeks or anything like that, but they have 32-sided die in Dungeons and Dragons, you know. And so that's like a polyhedron, a, the, uh, a shape where the, it has multiple sides and faces to it. Uh -huh. And he says, this represents the diversity of our communities and the different sides and faces of the die border on one another. So there's an opportunity for a great cultural and religious exchange, a great exchange of experiences that can help build bridges and build community rather than divide. Without imposing homogeneity, the church in the United States and our church in Columbus, which is very diverse, can integrate the gifts of the people of God through dialogue and by being patient, living sometimes in a creative tension. It's tempting to always think of, the, uh, of ourselves as a church in crisis, and what are we going to do to overcome the crisis, and how, what are going to be our new pastoral strategies. But if you look at history, the church emerges from the crisis, not merely by our own efforts, but by God's grace and her cooperation with it. Each crisis affords the opportunity to discern the presence of the Lord and to refocus on the mission and where we are going together. It is my sincere hope that through this Evangelization Leadership Summit, we may have a clearer picture not only of where we would like to go, but where the Lord is leading us. All right, thank you.